is the CIIS Public Programs Podcast, featuring talks and conversations recorded live by the Public Programs Department of California Institute of Integral Studies, a nonprofit university located in San Francisco on unceded Ramaytush Ohlone land. In his latest book, The Web of Meaning, author and integrator Jeremy Lentz investigates the ways in which seemingly disparate streams of thought are compatible. And when taken together, they are key to facing the existential problems of the 21st century. In this episode, CIS philosophy, cosmology, and consciousness professor Matthew Siegel joins Jeremy for an inspiring conversation exploring a new worldview based on a deep recognition of connectedness within ourselves, between each other, and with the entire natural world. This episode was recorded during a live online event on August 11th, 2021. A transcript is available at CIISpod.com. To find out more about CIIS and public programs like this one, visit our website, CIIS.edu, and connect with us on social media at CIIS Pub Programs. Hello, Jeremy. It's great to be here with you tonight. Uh, And by here, uh, I mean uh, because we're virtualized um, on planet Earth and people are joining us, I'm sure, from all around the country and the world. And um, it's it's a real honor to speak to you. This is your your second book, uh, The Web of Meaning, and I'm so excited to Uh, ask you some questions about it and and engage in some of the most important questions that our species has ever been faced with. So welcome, Jeremy. Good to be with you. Yeah, well, thanks so much, Matt. Yeah, I'm I'm so happy to be here with you today. Looking forward to our conversation. Yeah, likewise. So your book is about um, the stories, and I mean, it's about a lot, but one of the things that it discusses is the stories that we tell ourselves um, the worldview that has guided Mm. our modern civilization. But before we get to that collective story, I want to ask you about Mm. your own personal journey and what it is that brought you as um, Mm. what brought you out of the the corporate world and a successful career um, into (sighs) another successful career as as a writer. Uh, and a thought leader who's engaged with the world crisis. Uh, how did that all transpire for you? Yeah, you know, um, it was an interesting and unexpected kind of veering of my life path, if you will. Um, when I was actually uh, um, like a teenager and in my early 20s, I actually um, was pretty much in the same place I am now in terms of really looking for meaning and not accepting where um, you know, what my society told me about. And I, I, actually, I grew up in England. <clears throat> um, but then um, when I was actually, uh, uh, to, when I was just finished with um, my undergraduate at Cambridge, and I just wanted to leave behind <clears throat> this place like Thatcher's England. I wanted to kind of explore <laughs> the world. And what was so interesting is that what drew me to the United States was actually all these like videos of Woodstock and things like that from the 60s of people actually looking to understand, understand the universe, if you will. But what happened was I, I didn't realize I was landing in Reagan's America. And um, I ended up actually marrying somebody who 
had been a hippie and had traveled all over South America, um, but she wanted to, in her words, go straight. Uh, and, and so um, I did that with her, and, um, and, uh, to, and she had two kids we wanted to give a good education to and all this kind of stuff. So I went and got an MBA of all places, um, at the University of Chicago, the home of Milton Friedman uh, School of Thinking. Um, and, and so, yeah, that was what led to have, having this kind of successful business career. But then at a certain point in my life, things crashed around me. Um, my wife at the time, she passed away some years back, got very sick. I left the company that I'd started, uh, one of the first internet companies, um, and taken public. I left that to look after her. And, and then I really lost... Um, my relationship with her, if you will, because she went through some cognitive decline. My company that I started collapsed. And it's like everything I'd built around my life collapsed around me. And then I really decided, whatever I did with my life going forward, I wanted to be truly meaningful. But that was my question. Where did meaning actually come from? And that led me on this path of 10 or 15 years or so of actually trying to peel the layers of the onion, if you will, of meaning and trying to understand what was actually meaningful. And, and, and it was that path that led me to write first The Patting Instinct and then this book. And it wasn't initially my plan or my um, thought that it would look at how the world needs to be transformed. But the actual search for meaning itself brought me to this place of realizing how much we need to do to change our world right now. Mm. Mm. Wow. So, I mean, <clears throat> I think it sounds like you were confronted with, um, you know, some of the challenges that every human being ultimately has to face, um, whether it's our own death or the death of loved ones, and that this really catapulted you into asking uh, these mm -hmm. bigger civilization level questions. So this book is really the web of meaning. I have the U.S. edition, and I got to mm -hmm. say, um, just as an aside, that I really love the British, uh, the U.K. Mm -hmm. cover better, which <laughs> ironically has a Joshua tree on the cover, right? There you have it, which mm -hmm. is native to the Southwest United States. So I feel like <laughs> the U.K. version is kind of um, kind of stealing our local uh, <laughs> flora here. Um, I think both of us are in California. So mm. in any event... Um, Let's let's talk about worldview and um, the contemporary modern worldview um, is what your book is really aimed at addressing. And um, my question to sort of get the ball rolling here is why is that the level uh, at which you have aimed uh, your efforts? Mm -hmm. um, I don't think it's the only level that you would think is relevant, but some... Um, for example, Karl Marx, maybe you have heard uh, of this fellow. He often would say that worldview and culture is kind of the superstructure and what's really driving um, our civilization, what shapes people's lives is the economic and material conditions, right? Um, there's not a total disconnect between the two, but for someone like Marx, he's a historical materialist. It's the it's the material conditions that are driving things rather than the culture, which is sort of um, a, the superstructure that rides on top of the gears that are really making things happen. So why is it that you think addressing us, mm. the crisis at the level of worldview is, is so important? Yeah, well, 
you know, it's an interesting analogy, <clears throat> that, that idea of the structure and the superstructure. And I personally um, <clears throat> would, view, would see worldview not as the superstructure, but as the foundation. Mm. Um, <clears throat> and that's why I think it's so fundamental. Um, because really a worldview, if we wanted to kind of change um, metaphors a, a, a little bit, is really like the lens through which we see the world, through which we kind of pattern meaning into the world. And um, as I explored in detail in my um, earlier book, The Patterning Instinct, which is really a cultural history of humanity's search for meaning and it looks at the different ways in which um, different cultural complexes have patterned meaning into the universe and how that led to their values. What came out of that book is this, um, this recognition that the values of a culture actually have shaped history. Um, and that by the same token, the values that we hold right now are what will ultimately shape our future. And that's why it's so critical to get that worldview correct. And, you know, another way of, uh, of looking at how to think about a, a worldview is really it, it's so powerful because we don't even realize that we have one. And just like a fish might swim in water and its whole life it'll never know it's in water because that's all it knows. Most of us just live according to whatever our worldview implicitly tells us is reality and just assumes that's what it is. And that's why uh, it's so critical that once you actually begin to realize your patterning meaning into the world around you in a certain way, it frees you to actually begin to look at different ways to pattern meaning into things. So I'd very much disagree with that um, sort of Marxian notion of culture as being the superstructure. I think that um, what it is, it, it's a little bit like um, superficial culture. It can be it can look a little bit like the wallpaper. If you imagine some sort of Trump deloyal, you know, where you have some wallpaper that looks like it's, the, it's something beneath it, but that's all it is. That's the kind of culture maybe he was talking about. What I'm talking about is the fundamental way in which we make sense of things. Mm -hmm. And just to follow up on this question of worldview, you said that often we're swimming in it like a, like a fish in water. We don't see it. How is it that... Um, I mean, you, you told us a bit about how you came to recognize mm -hmm. that you exist within a worldview and that it needs to change. Um, are there ways other than how it transpired for you that uh, you think would allow people to become conscious of the worldview that they have uh, inherited and absorbed unconsciously mm. and then step into the work of actively working to uh, revise uh, that worldview if they find it to be faulty? Yeah. Yeah, that's a, a great question. It seems to me that maybe there's two essential elements that could lead somebody to really changing their worldview. One of them is more like this deeply felt element, almost like a spiritual element, um, a sense that something isn't quite right. It, it really is something akin to the Buddhist notion of dukkha, the sense of recognizing, coming into touch with some sense of dissatisfaction, something's wrong, um, and wanting to actually shift that. Um, and that can lead to all kinds of, obviously, spiritual growth. But in terms of worldview, I think there's another element that's needed too, which is a cognitive curiosity um, and the linkage between those two, a sense that something's wrong and a realization that it's got something to do with the reality that we are being told exists out there and a desire to start exploring. And, you know, for, for me, it took years, actually, of research um, in those earlier years I was talking about, um, of looking at other worldviews 
um, to begin to realize that our worldview is not actually um, just this kind of given reality, and then to realize it's not even scientifically true. Um, and that's what was, to me, one of the biggest kind of shocks, if you will, as it began to unfold, and something I really tried to focus on and take people through in this new book. So the worldview that you're critiquing in this book is the, um, the mechanistic, reductionistic view of the universe that um, mm -hmm. comes out of Europe in the modern period right. and kind of spreads around the world, um, not peacefully, uh, but through mm -hmm. colonization often. And um, tell us about this, this worldview. Um, why is it so destructive and also as you mentioned in your book, um, how has it, how is it double-edged in the sense that it's also brought some, some gifts? I mean, you draw on science a lot in this book yeah. to bring forth this new worldview, but it's a different kind of science. So lead us through that, that historical journey of the rise of science and this mechanistic view and the transition into um, a more interconnected understanding coming out of a new form of science. Right, yes, absolutely. Because a, a, key, a key theme in the book, and something we, we can come to in a minute, is that science and reductionism are by no means the same thing. And so let's just sort of keep that up there and, and come back to that. Um, but so really, to answer the core of your question, I think the key element of the worldview that I think is so destructive um, and also actually leads to some of the positive uh, outcomes that it has, um, is that it's a worldview of separation. Mm. And that is a, is a key element. And it's a worldview that basically says, and it, in my view, it came from the, the ancient Greeks, even though I know um, you, you and I might not see things exactly in that lineage or whatever, but there was this this. And what got inherited into Christianity, in my understanding, is the sense of a split universe, basically, like a sense of a, a heaven um, somewhere outside of the world um, and this kind of uh, world right here. And that split cosmos also uh, was aligned with a sense of a split human being, a sense of uh, a person having a soul separate from the body, and this kind of idea that the soul um, was actually imprisoned in the body. And then in Christianity, this kind of sense that um, the body was almost like this minefield that, was, uh, that could stop your soul getting to heaven. So that was this key separation which desacralized the natural world so that the source of divinity, the source of what is um, sacred and important was seen to be outside the living earth. And it was, I mean, what I, what I find so interesting is that it was Christianity that actually incubated the scientific revolution. We're so used nowadays to thinking of this battle between science and Christianity. But it was the very, that very sense of separation that led <clears throat> this kind of deification of reason um, in the early Christian era. And it was, it was that part of it which led those founders of the scientific revolution, people like Galileo and Newton and Descartes, to feel they were doing God's work in using their reason to sort of decipher this incredibly complex machine that was nature. And really, I think it was Descartes that did the, probably had the most impact in setting the modern world into the path it was on <clears throat> with his 
what, what he did is he basically took the old Christian notion of soul and kind of reformulated it as mind. And so, you know, in his famous statement, cogito ergo sum, I think, therefore I am. What that led to was this identity of the, the true human being with just that thinking faculty, um, with the idea that the rest of nature basically didn't have that sense of true identity. It was just a machine in his, in his view. And even our bodies were just this kind of machine housing our true soul or our true mind. That's led to both to the positive outcome of uh, this notion that when you start to see nature as a machine, well, you start to try to break it apart to see how the little parts work, which led to so much of the positive progress that came with the scientific revolution in understanding the world. <clears throat> but it also led to this sense of seeing the rest of nature as a resource for exploitation. And I, I think it's no coincidence, in fact, that right in that same period in Europe, right around the 17th century, we see not just the scientific revolution and the rise in reductionist science, but we also see um, the very the beginnings of colonialism. We see the beginnings of uh, whiteness and the, and the beginnings of white supremacy. We see the beginnings of capitalism and the, first, the, the, the very first uh, shareholder-owned corporations got, um, got started right around that same time. Because if you look at each of those different um, things that unfolded, every one of them came around from this place of exploitation, seeing what was outside your own identity as being like a resource to exploit, to extract value from, rather than something you're connected with. Mm-hmm. And <clears throat> so you trace this history um, in your book, <clears throat> But you also, um, you know, as I mentioned, you draw upon, I guess, what we could call the new paradigm sciences, which uh, are attempting to leave the the Cartesian and Newtonian origins of European science behind to, I mean, I guess they're still inheriting this uh, mathematical precision and the empirical rigor and so on. Mm -hmm. But those very tools, after a few hundred years of research, have... Uh, really undermine this mechanistic mm. picture of nature. And so in your book, you talk about ne- neuroscience systems theory, uh, this uh, understanding of mm. biological mm. evolution that is no longer mm. merely a kind of um, competitive struggle among individuals, but biologists are beginning to recognize the, the role of s- symbiosis Lynn Margulis, the famous biologist, talked about symbiogenesis, Mm. the way that new species are actually brought forth through a process of sharing genetic material and and whole uh, free-living cells can be merged into um, other cells to create organisms of greater complexity. And so can you describe a bit how science uh, has has begun to open up to a different form of uh, worldview, ultimately, one that's rooted Mm. in this connectivity rather than the sense of separation out of which it initially emerged. Yeah, well, perhaps the best way to start looking at that is to look at the actual distinction between science itself and this reductionist worldview. Because even though most people 
tend to conflate that. It, it, we, we sort of think of it just in normal conversation as though they're the same thing. But if, if, we, if we look at what science actually is, it's really like, um, it's a methodology, and, and it also has its own, it's, it's really a value system of itself. Like it values things like <coughs> honesty, transparency, um, being evidence-based, um, empiricism. There's a, a number of things about science which, <coughs> which really has its own values. Um, and when we look at reductionism, that's really one uh, uh, sort of method that is used within science to try to answer a lot of questions about things. But what I see happening, what I, I believe happened with reductionism, is it was so successful at actually answering questions about the universe, whether in physics or chemistry or biology, that over time scientists um, who followed that path begin, began to think that reductionism could explain not just a lot of stuff about the universe, but everything about the universe. And not just that it could explain everything about the universe, but that any other form of explanation that didn't follow reductionism was necessarily invalid. Now, um, in the book, I, I call this an ontological leap. Um, really, I call it ontological reductionism. And I believe that it's a leap of faith pretty much as big as a leap of faith of somebody saying, I believe in God, and God created the, um, the universe in, in six days and, or whatever, because <clears throat> there's no reason why reductionism could be used to explain everything about the universe. And what these other... Uh, new sciences of uh, connection, really, I think, for the North. Uh, like, like you say, systems thinking, but systems biology also, network theory. Any science that looks at the connections between things, and what they tend to lead to is this recognition that actually there are multiple layers of explanation in the real world. So sciences like these, they don't reject reductionism in the slightest. They build on reductionism. But, and, and so they're, they're not like some sort of spiritual woo-woo of saying, like, oh, there's some other reality out there that reductionism isn't looking at. But they say, in addition to the reductionist components of what makes our world happen, there are also a components of self-organization. And when you study these components of self-organization, you recognize that oftentimes self-organized systems lead to um, <clears throat> higher levels of complexity, which uh, can be described as emergence, where at that new level of complexity, <clears throat> you need to come up with new ways of actually understanding how that new extra complex system works than you could have through just looking at the parts alone at the bottom of that system. It's simple. It's like, so it's complementary to reductionism. It's not instead of. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Right. So there's this new recognition that evolution whether biological or in the broader sense, cosmological, looking at the entire history of the universe, is a process whereby uh, more complex wholes are emerging that are not reducible to the behavior of the parts, right? That uh, yes. new properties manifest at the, at the level of the whole. And, and I'd add, yes, exactly. I'd add one other really critical part to this, which is that the, the observation of these elements is not, cannot be essentially separated from me doing the observing. So this is a key element here because we begin to look at um, really a, a sense of 
things emerging at the level of my perception of something else causes that new um, a, a new level of understanding uh, or a new system of complexity to emerge. And in fact, when you look at some of the key concepts in life, which I explore in the book, whether it's life itself or consciousness or meaning or any of these sort of really big uh, concepts, we find that they're actually um, concepts that get enacted and through interactions between different components. And it's only, it's the enactment itself that is the reality rather than the actual individual pieces. Mm -hmm. Right. Yes. Yeah, so whereas the early mechanistic form of science had this um, God's eye view perspective on nature as if the scientist was outside of the world looking in, mm -hmm. the new sciences, whether it's complexity theory or uh, quantum theory, of course, is bringing the observer back into uh, the context of the natural world as um, one of the, um, the entities in relationship to what's being studied so that there's this recognition of a participatory role that the right. scientist as an observer is playing in what is being observed, right? Exactly. And even a, um, a participatory role in, um, in the very concept itself, things like consciousness, uh, these sciences lead us to recognize that that in itself is enacted, that we participate in consciousness. It's not something that arises somewhere else. Right. It, I mean, when we do investigate nature scientifically, consciousness, we, I think human beings, including our consciousness, we're part of nature. It becomes very obvious, impossible to ignore the participatory dimension of the study of our unconsciousness. Right. Um, it's a little bit easier to think of the biological world as something out there, but even there, it's already like it's our own bodies we're talking about mm. to some extent. Physics, of course, is the paradigm um, out of which modern science emerged. I mean, the, the, the idea that we could study the inanimate natural world as though it were merely a collection of objects out there that we can carefully measure. I mean, that's what science was born on, this, this um, methodology that took the subject out of the picture and just looked at the measurable objects, right? Matter in motion. It could be studied mathematically. And that was really exciting. But as more progress was made in physics in the early 20th century, you know, um, quantum theory was born, relativity theory was born, each in their own way are bringing the observer back into uh, the, the, the matter in motion that's being studied in a way that forever problematizes any attempt to get a view from nowhere, right? Mm, exactly. So given this um, interrelationality, given this, the, the interconnectivity uh, that science has uncovered, um, given the participatory dimension of science, it's no surprise that many, um, many writers and thinkers have made analogies between these new sciences and various forms of spirituality, Eastern spirituality in particular, whether Buddhism or Taoism, um, you discuss those as well as Neo-Confucian Neo philosophy in your book. Mm -hmm. And so um, when we do make these sorts of comparisons between new paradigm science and spirituality, um, well, first of all, I want you to talk a bit about why those analogies are, are so tempting. Um, but yeah. 
because the resonances are very striking indeed. But I also want to ask you to reflect on any potential dangers here, because on the one hand, we're talking about timeless spiritual um, insights, right? When we draw on the world's wisdom traditions, um, there's something that is unlikely to change about their value and their truth. Whereas mm -hmm. on the other hand, science as a methodology, as you said, um, is constantly, um, it's not a collection of finished knowledge. It's constantly challenging itself. New paradigms are being born all the time. And so what happens if we make too close of a link between a particular scientific paradigm right. and this spiritual insight when science changes its mind? Mm -hmm. yeah. yeah, yeah, exactly. <clears throat> That's a super important question. Um, so first, why don't we look at what I explore in the book um, as the confluences and the value that, um, that arises from that? And then uh, look at that second issue, which is what are the dangers um, <clears throat> involved in going uh, in, in that direction um, to be aware of? So first off, I think when we look at <clears throat> the relation between these two things, like what, what science tells us and what uh, spiritual traditions tell us. I think <clears throat> maybe uh, I'd like to kind of share the <clears throat> sort of discovery that I made as I was in the middle of doing all this kind of research year after year, trying to figure <clears throat> some of these things out. Because um, I, I was sort of just beginning to um, <clears throat> begin to see that like re reduction of science was not all there was about science and going deep into complexity theory and other systems thinking and stuff like that. Um, and one of the great writers in this area is actually, his name is um, Stuart Kaufman. And he, he writes um, books, he's, he's from the Santa Fe Institute. He writes books with titles, things like At Home in the Universe, like looking at how the, the new understanding of physics can uh, show uh, how connected we are, things like that. And he writes in this book something about how um, we're looking at these new principles of life and new principles of meaning. And then he says, we're kind of beginning to explore new territory um, that has never been explored before. And we need to find out the sort of principles around that. Great words. But meanwhile, at the same time, I'd been reading a lot of, or, and going quite deep into these East Asian ways of thinking. And I, did, I was reading a lot about these neo-Confucian philosophers. And most of us in the West know almost nothing about neo-Confucianism. It sounds like some sort of boring academic subject uh, that <clears throat> maybe Sinophiles want to study or whatever. It's actually this amazing group of sages about a thousand years ago in the Song Dynasty in China who basically synthesized um, <clears throat> some of the, th the threads of the millennia previous in China from Taoism um, and Buddhism and Confucianism. Um, and that's we call them neo-Confucianism. They call them they call themselves as the study of the school of the Tao. But what they uh, when they try to make us a, a systematic understanding of the cosmos, they looked at it as being comprised of of qi, but also of li, which they described as the organizing principles that connected everything around uh, the the qi. And I began to realize, wow, what Stuart Kaufman feels like we've never been exploring before. 
these organizing principles of nature have actually been explored not according to our scientific methodology, but according to other ways of human relating to um, <clears throat> by all these different traditions. They basically were exploring the lead, these organizing principles. And then I began to realize that actually <clears throat> when when science, when reductionist science <clears throat> tells us that basically there is no meaning to the universe, there's no value, like that science is basically just looking at the, the sort of all these billiard balls um, hitting each other, <clears throat> that once we start to look at those connecting principles, we see that this split that we have in our Western worldview is no longer valid, that there is no longer the split between mind and body. There is no longer the split, basically, between spiritual understanding and scientific understanding. And, and so, you know, so many times people in the West go like, well, I, I believe in science, you know, I, um, and so I have these spiritual ideas, but that's some, some sort of domain separate from my scientific understanding. And, you know, it's just recognized, well, we just got to like not integrate them. But I realized that actually through this other understanding, all of those elements of our human experience could truly be integrated. And in many ways, that's what this book, The Web of Meaning, is about. It's about um, <clears throat> the process of integrating the different elements of life <clears throat> that we have ac been accustomed to think are separate, which involves integrating um, wisdom traditions from the past with, the, with modern understanding, integrating spirituality with science, um, integrating humans with the rest of life. In each of these ways, integrating refers not just kind of squishing it all together, but looking at how everything is actually unified while differentiated in this kind of co complex, uh, essentially this complex web of meaning. So that, that's kind of my ex, sort of a description of what I see as positive. But let's get to your, your point about <clears throat> are there negatives to this? And yeah, I think that there's always a danger of looking at one particular scientific insight and saying, okay, this is, now we know that. Now we know what um, uh, spiritual wisdom is truly about or something like that. And so oftentimes I get concerned when people look at um, sort of deep physics to explain spirituality. Um, because that's where I, I have the same concern that you were just describing. Well, what happens, you know, if somebody says, you know, what physics tells us is there are no elemental particles, it's all just um, vibrations of, string, uh, of strings and string theory. Well, that all sounds great, and that would be a lovely way to say, okay, well, this kind of shows that the connections between things are more important than the things themselves. But what happens if 10 years from now some new physicist shows like, oh, str string theory is wrong. Actually, there is some fundamental particle of particles that, you know, and, and I think that's what's dangerous. What I'm looking at is something very different. It's looking at more like a way of perceiving reality. And, and it's simply this recognition that modern uh, complexity theory, systems thinking, etc., has, is, is that when we look at the world, oftentimes the relationship between things very often are more important than the things themselves. That's a principle which applies underlying systems thinking and <clears throat> applies very much to spiritual traditions like Buddhism, Taoism, or Neo-Confucianism. Mm -hmm. Thank you for that. Um, I have studied the Western tradition primarily, though of course I've been enriched uh, by my study of Taoism and Buddhism. I have not studied 
uh, Confucianism as much. And so I did learn a lot uh, from your work. And so I thank you for that. Um, but, you know, I, a lot of my efforts um, are to retrieve these aspects of the, um, the Greek philosophical uh, and Christian and Jewish, um, just because of my own lineage and inheritance, uh, religious and spiritual and philosophical traditions. And um, you, you also mentioned Carl Jung in your book, and he's a, the depth psychologist. His work has been important for me. And he's someone that uh, in working with um, Freud, who was his mentor and teacher for a while, uh, developed this new method of depth psychology to help, in a way, you could say surface the worldview that Westerners had taken for granted. And Jung did individual therapy, but he also had a lot to tell us about our, the collective unconscious and uh, the complexes and the, um, the psychoses, really, that affect us at a collective level. And one of the things that Jung warned about was, in speaking to Europeans and Americans, but mostly Europeans, um, he was worried that there was this tendency to look to the most elite esoteric traditions of the East um, and to import their views and practices. And what worried Jung was that, you know, we have our own inheritances, our own the archetypal patterns working within our psyche that might not necessarily um, be compatible, at least initially. And, you know, this was almost a century ago now that he, he began warning about this. And so I guess I felt like there were times in your book where in um, celebrating the, the, the wisdom and insight of uh, the Neo-Confucians and, and kind of um, looking at Plato's dualism, say, or the way that Christianity tends to em emphasize the afterlife rather than the earthly plane, all of which is, is perfectly true and a valid critique, but there are other lineages in this Western stream that I think mitigate against the dominant stream. And I guess following Jung's concerns, the question I want to put to you is, is there any risk in um, so uh, kind of vilifying our own um, inheritances as Westerners that we end up disemboweling ourselves? Mm -hmm. And is there any hope for trying to to, to redeem and revise and, and build upon resources within our traditions in dialogue with all the world's traditions from Asia, indigenous traditions, and so on. We need to be planetary. So, you know, don't get me wrong. Mm -hmm. It's not like I'm trying to say we should just return to the European lineages or anything. But is there any sense in which we can um, draw upon the wisdom of, of the West as well in this conversation as we move into um, a more interconnected worldview? Oh, yes, I, I think absolutely. Um, and really, uh, I try to be really clear in the book that in no way am I trying to kind of attack the Western worldview or say um, there's something um, wrong with it, um, essentially. Um, I mean, for, for starters, um, as, as we've sort of touched on a little bit, um, the, it's a worldview that's brought to us science, um, and it's a worldview that has brought to us all this incredible technology. Um, 
so much of it has been so life-enhancing and, and so enhancing the quality of human life. Um, it's a worldview that's also brought concepts um, into uh, the sort of global consciousness, things like um, human rights or um, things like uh, freedom or democracy. M many of these big concepts arose out of enlightenment thinking, and it's something to be absolutely celebrated. So it's not like... Um, I feel like there's a, a good-bad thing going on, like, oh, we've got to turn to these better um, East Asian traditions or anything like that. But it's more that, uh, to your point, we need to develop a planetary consciousness. We're facing, really, the greatest crisis that humanity has probably ever faced. Maybe um, <clears throat> there was a time before we left Africa when we, we were maybe going down to a few tens of thousands of uh, individuals, and maybe there was a crisis going on there. Since uh, any time since then, this is a massive crisis we are facing. And we need all the resources that our human lineage can give us. That means we need the scientific resources. We need the resources of the great wisdom traditions from around the world. We need the resources from indigenous traditions that have maintained a closer connection <clears throat> with some of the core human uh, um, like ways of living that got lost as agriculture developed and as uh, science developed, etc. So we need everything we can get. <clears throat> but at the same time, we have to avoid this kind of squishing it all together. And, you know, to the issue you raise, uh, that Jung raised, and <clears throat> I, I, we can see that in this um, sort of blind path, if you will, of Orientalism. There was this you know, great book, obviously, um, written by... Edward Said um, decades ago, <clears throat> really critiquing just how there's been this whole history in the West of romanticizing the East and then, um, and then <clears throat> creating a new bifurcation, like, oh, the West is rational, the East is spiritual, all this kind of claptrap, right, that um, people get caught up in. And we see a lot of that still today in New Age thinking. There's um, so many people who just, you know, because somebody puts himself up as a guru and they walk around in saffron, they must have some insight into something and all this, all this stuff. That is not what I'm suggesting and not where I'm going. Um, but I believe that um, if we try to take a truly integrative approach and try to look at the best insights we can from these different traditions, we're able to actually really build a worldview, set of a platform, if you will, that could lead humanity into a totally different phase of our human existence. One that actually integrates, well, in the su subtitle of my book is Integrating Science and Traditional Wisdom to Find Our Place in the Universe. Mm -hmm. And I believe it's possible to integrate science with traditional wisdom to actually not just find humanity's place, but to move humanity as a global and species into a relationship with the earth, a relationship with ourselves that could truly lead to flourishing. That's mm. the path I think is possible. Mm. Yeah, thank you for that, Jeremy. And just to, to pick on, on up on this thread of the importance of developing a planetary consciousness, a planetary worldview um, that doesn't just mush everything together, that mm -hmm. respects the diversity of the world's various traditions and people's um, and yet also is at least gesturing towards um, our common predicament, um, which is that we are all members of an earth community that is increasingly imperiled because of um, a particular worldview, which we've been discussing. Um, 
I think in our particular moment, we're, I don't even know, almost two years now into this COVID-19 <laughs> pandemic. And in a way, um, we're seeing how science really does provide us with a, a method and a language and a means of connecting across continents. Um, we all recognize the same phenomenon, um, this virus. We're all trying to mitigate it. And yet there's such, at the same time that we have this scientific knowledge that's helping us address the crisis, um, there's a, a lot of resistance to the, um, there, there are concerns I would say about the imposition of state power and corporate power, big pharma and so on, to, to manage the narrative, to make sure that everyone is following the science. And I think before we had COVID-19 and the pandemic, there was climate change, which similarly science, no matter what your, what language you speak, what continent you live on, if there are scientists there, they research the climate, they study meteorology, the composition of the atmosphere, and they all agree this is not good, right? But there's similarly a lot of resistance to this hope we would hope universal scientific understanding. And so I guess, I think you started writing this before the pandemic started. Right. But given the situation that we're in, the role of medical science in addressing the crisis we're facing and the resistance to that narrative, how do you think your work can help address the situation? I know that's a big ask. I mean, but, you know, given our current situation, what is it that addressing this at the level of worldview can um, bring to the table that maybe isn't part of our regular mm. discussion about it? <clears throat> well, I think that the when we're looking not just at uh, <clears throat> at the COVID nineteen situation, but um, fundamentally, it's the the climate crisis is just massive. And, you know, just this week, the IPCC came out with this report saying, yeah, it, we're probably already, unless we really change um, so much, we're, uh, you know, we're going to blow that one and a half degree Celsius number within um, a decade or more. And, and, and we're headed <coughs> um, quite potentially to the real threat of our civilization itself uh, st- staying around before the century is out. And here's what, what, what's so fascinating, and this, I think, is a, is a way to come at this, realizing how worldview is so important. If you look at those different climate models that the IPCC has put, has put out, <clears throat> that have been studied now for years, you know, a, a, aggressive, a, a, like the best case and the worst case, everything else, every one of those climate models assumed a continued increase year by year in gross domestic product around the world. Nobody even took it as a question that maybe that's a variable that can actually be impacted by actually moving to a degrowth or a post-growth situation for the world. And that shows how powerful worldviews are. The current worldview takes it as a given that you have to keep growing 
um, basically in an, uh, like on a finite planet at an exponential rate, year after year after year. That's what is underlying the way in which we're destructing, uh, in which we're destroying ecosystems around the world. That even climate breakdown itself is just a symptom of an even larger problem, the sort of ecological devastation that our civilization is causing by looking at the natural world as a resource. So then even the more sort of quote-unquote enlightened people coming from that worldview will say things like, <clears throat> we need to look at a more sustainable path so we can keep exploiting nature um, you know, uh, more sustainably, basically, rather than looking at recognizing our connectedness with all of life, which leads to a fundamentally different way of looking at relating to these problems, rather than saying, oh, let's do <coughs> geoengineering, treat the earth as this kind of machine that went wrong, just so we can keep growing uh, our GDP even more um, over the next few decades, start to look at what are we doing in the system of humanity with a living earth? How can we actually shift our direction to start to regenerate the earth, not just keep it sustainable, but regenerate it? And how can we actually look at this symbiotic flourishing between humans within our human society and, and then between humans in the living earth in a way that we can actually learn from life's own lessons, basically, to find a, a, way, a way forward that, is, and that doesn't involve this kind of insanity that we're on right now. So this is my, my sense of why a, vo a worldview is so fundamental, but actually has very specific outcomes when you actually start looking at things in a, in a different way. Mm -hmm. Do you have a sense for why uh, some pockets of, of society, uh, I mean, it's, it's more close to home for me here in America, um, there are a lot of people who resist this transition to a new worldview, and there's a lot of fear um, about what it is exactly that these green ecological spiritual people are trying to to bring into the world what's this is this resistance just a matter of fear of the unknown or what what is being tapped mm. into here that's causing such resistance yeah <clears throat> well, you know when you talk about re resistance to this new world view i actually think of two different pockets of resistance if you will um, I, I can't really call them pockets. They're more like bigger domains of resistance. Well-funded domains of resistance, <laughs> right. yes. But I mean, one, one fascinating one is actually from reductionist thinking people themselves. Um, and it's actually quite fascinating. Um, I've, I've experienced this myself where I've written um, articles critiquing Richard Dawkins and the selfish gene theory and looking at the connection between that and the sort of notion, the Gordon Gecko greed is good notion of capitalism. And I found myself bombarded by mm. literally like a thousand or more um, sort of uh, comments in, in one or more of these articles, really ad hominem, a, a little bit like um, this um, you would expect maybe from right-wing fundamentalists or whatever, 
rather than from uh, sort of scientific-minded people. So mm -hmm. that's in itself is quite fascinating. And I think there you need to look at the sort of Thomas Kuhn understanding of the <clears throat> of paradigm shift and the realization that when people have dedicated their lives um, <clears throat> and built that prestige and reputation on a particular way of thinking, it's very difficult. It takes tremendous courage um, and incredible open-mindedness for them not to just double down and defend their point of view against what they see as being as an, an attack. So that's kind of one domain. But then I think you're probably referring more to what we see in, gen in the politics of the United States and basically all around the world is groups of people just feeling that their whole, everything is being taken away from them by progressive forces and reacting so strongly against it with this rise in right-wing extremism and everything that's so damaging right now. But I think that's a very different uh, understanding of this, of that kind of resistance. There, I think, what you simply need to look at is the rise in the neoliberal ideology of the last few decades and this incredible rise in equality where basically um, the not just wealth but the very basics for any kind of um, economic or physical security have been sucked up from the mass of people towards these elites. And it's not just the wealth and the economics itself, but the very sense of meaning. Um, <clears throat> meaning itself has been uh, sort of under attack, if you will, in the West for over 100 years with the rise of consumerism. But at least even consumerism gave, and gave some level of meaning to people in, uh, in, in their communities or whatever. But when even that has been like uh, blown away by this um, by this kind of ravaging from this breakdown in our sort of social contract. What has happened, I think, is the elites don't want people to all go around saying, oh, this is really unfair. There's something wrong about <clears throat> like a mega billionaire having a hundred billion dollars. Well, and um, you know, millions of people are scrambling to even just uh, put a roof over their head or just get enough to eat. They don't want people to think that. So they simply deflect the attention to threats that seem to be closer at hand, like immigrants or um, these uh, the snowflakes who are trying to undermine your you know um, your sense of um, sort of male uh, your you know your place in the patriarchy and all this kind of stuff. So there we see I I believe quite um, cynical and conscious um, approaches by the corporate owned media to actually just make news out of stuff that isn't news in order to deflect people's attention from what's really going on. Right, right. Yeah. I'm going to go with, with this question for you, Jeremy. It's not an easy one, um, but it's a question about morality and uh, whether or not it is intrinsic to human nature uh, in the sense that it's in some way evolved as... Um, we have learned to be more social creatures. This is something you discuss in your book, this notion of group selection, which uh, is a, um, an approach that's not the Dawkins selfish gene, every individual for themselves kind of approach, but it recognizes that there are multiple levels of selection and that one of them has to do with um, group bonding and that mm -hmm. one idea is that our sense of... Um, fairness and justice and, and morality comes out of 
this is kind of an evolutionary process, but I wonder if you think the good, which is a term that Plato develops, right? That refers for him to this highest notion, like he analogizes it to the sun and it just says this, as, as the, the sun provides light that shines, that illuminates everything else. The good is um, the source of uh, our conscience, our sense of what's virtuous to do and how we ought to behave. Do you think that this is something which is a function of sort of the contingencies of group selection in our species evolutionary history? Or do you, do you find any basis for the notion that somehow the good was like written into the fabric of the cosmos from the get-go? Does this mm. question make sense? Does it, is the good something that emerged in the mm. course of evolution due to natural selection or group selection? Or is it something deeper that's actually guiding our evolution along the way? Yeah, I mean, profound question. And, uh, and ultimately, it, it's like this question about values, right? And I mean, are values ultimately relative? <clears throat> or is there um, some sort of a foundation to values? Um, and if there's a foundation, wh where do we find it? Um, <clears throat> and well, I think a lot of, and I explore this in the book, in fact. Um, uh, there's a chapter in the book called Culti Cultivating Integrated Values, um, where I look at many of these ways in which it's so complex looking at values because people come at s from some such different places. And I think that um, <clears throat> the when we like look deeper and deeper at where these layers come from, one of the things that I look at is that, in a way, we can understand value itself <clears throat> as arising with life. Um, <clears throat> that if we just kind of imagine for a moment a well, a, a universe where there is no life whatsoever, um, then maybe those reductionist uh, ontologists, <laughs> ontological reductionists, are not so wrong. There is just a bunch of lots of billiard balls hitting each other, and doesn't really matter. Um, <clears throat> what happens to them. But as soon as life emerged on this planet, uh, uh, roughly four billion years ago, uh, when people look at try to understand what life is about, um, <clears throat> what they, uh, what they ha have come to recognize as the source of life is this kind of self-organized process of <clears throat> really um, moving against entropy. So you know, we, we know entropy is coming from the second law of thermodynamics, that basically, ultimately, the universe will just kind of um, go through this heat death, you know, many billions of years into the future. And entropy is this kind of notion that um, <clears throat> once things begin to dissipate, you can't sort of bring them back again. You can't, once you break an egg, you can't sort of get the yolk back, etc. cetera. Um, <clears throat> and the record, this understanding of life that's developed now in the last few decades is that actually life is in a way like a local reversal of entropy. That what life actually does is sort of take entropy in and organizes it inside a membrane. Um, it self-organizes it and does a, a reversal of entropy. And what we understood, the reason I think value arose at that point is that those early proto-cells that started to do that had to make value judgments. Like, is something they're bringing in actually going to help them to maintain this reversal of entropy or not? And they began to say, 
we don't, that's a bad molecule, that's not going to help us, this one will really help us. Um, of course, they couldn't speak or think about it at the time, but that's what was going on. And so if you look at life in that way, we get, we get to see life itself as this actually nearly four billion years of this unfolding of increasingly rich, diverse form uh, like uh, of negative entropy locally happening on Earth. And that you can see there almost from the point of view of complexity. So, and if to almost like the ways in which things organize being more and more complex in the sense that they reverse entropy even more efficiently and effectively than had been done before. And if we begin to look at values coming from that, well, that leads to very much to this kind of life-affirming set of values. We get to realize that we, each of us ourselves, with our 40 trillion cells, are just one part of this amazing story of life unfolding in its richness over these billions of years. We're all part of life. We all are life as part of this unfolding. So, and to me, that, that leads to <clears throat> this, this sense that I think was best actually described by Albert Schweitzer, a 20th century humanitarian, who said, I am life that wills to live in the midst of life that wills to live. And he himself said, like, you know, from that, the having reverence for life is the foundation point of morality. And that's pretty much where I come, where I come from, and, or at least where I come to um, in my own exploration and in the book itself, is that <clears throat> and values, if we see values as fundamentally starting from life itself, that's values that can celebrate um, the integration and the diversity of life, celebrate all the different ways in which humans can like, do what we do, but fundamentally um, celebrate that within the context of life. And it begins to lean towards saying things that destroy the richness of life are um, inherently wrong. Mm. Mm. Yeah, it's so <laughs> profoundly important, I think, to be able to uh, expand the circle of value out beyond just the human sphere. Um, I mean, under neoliberal capitalism, it's not just, it's even narrower than that. I mean, a lot of human values, the, the value of human flourishing is not really considered um, essential mm -hmm. to GDP. Um, right. And so this expansion of value beyond just what say shareholders value, right. beyond uh, you know just what's gonna make a profit, but um, a conception of value that includes the whole biosphere and the 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 preciousness and the fragility of life on this planet um where we can begin to acknowledge that even if there's no use for it in the human economy um this species this uh individual you know ecosystem um has a value intrinsic to 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 itself just exactly. by virtue of its existence of as a living being or a community of living mm -hmm. beings um Exactly. I think that's, it's a profound expansion of our conception, mm -hmm. our modern Western conception of value. Um, so important. So I, I really am grateful to you for articulating it in such a clear, accessible, and powerful and exciting way in your book. Um, if we had more time, I'd, I'd want to ask more cosmological questions about the place of life mm. in, in the evolution of the whole universe and... Mm -hmm. The, the complexification of matter for billions of years before the earth 
solidified and the complex chemistry that gave rise to biological life forms was possible. I think there's mm. an interesting story to be told about the potential for value to precede even the emergence of life. Mm -hmm. um, but we'll have to save that for a different time. From the Absolutely. Great. Look forward to it. <clears throat> As we bring this conversation uh, to a close, I want to thank you, Jeremy, for uh, what you've shared with us tonight and also for this book and your first book. You're making a contribution to uh, what Thomas Berry uh, called the great work, which is you know trying to uh, transform our uh, modern consciousness into something more life-affirming recognizing its place within this this Gaian uh, life that we call planet Earth. And so um, just I have uh, deep gratitude and, uh, and respect for the work that you're doing. Mm. And I want to thank you for that. And uh, unless you have any final words. Oh, just to uh, thank you, Matt, for coming up with such you know, profound and interesting questions uh, that was uh, really enjoyable to explore. Thank you. Definitely. Thank you for listening to the CIIS Public Programs Podcast. Our talks and conversations are presented live in San Francisco, California. We recognize that our university's building in San Francisco occupies traditional, unceded Ramaytush Ohlone lands. If you are interested in learning more about native lands, languages, and territories, the website native-land.ca is a helpful resource for you to learn about and acknowledge the indigenous land where you live. Podcast production is supervised by Kirsten Van Cleef at CIS Public Programs. Audio production is supervised by Lau Barrer at Desired Effect. The CIIS Public Programs team includes Kyle DiMedio, Alex Elliott, Emlyn Guinea, Jason MacArthur, and Patty Fort. If you liked what you heard, please subscribe wherever you find podcasts, visit our website, ciis.edu, and connect with us on social media at CIIS Pub Programs. CIIS Public Programs commits to use our in-person and online platforms to uplift the stories and teachings of Black, Indigenous, and other people of color, those in the LGBTQIA community, and all of those whose lives emerge from the intersections of multiple identities.